Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the federal government has survived its first confidence vote. What does it all mean? A U.S. presidential debate that leaves everyone feeling dirty and in need of a shower. And is there a stigma around getting COVID-19, even if you live to tell? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Alicia Thompson, Scott's daughter. Did you see any of that U.S. presidential debate last night? Those two granddads are worse than my brother and I. The only thing missing was a holiday dinner table. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Wow. Did you watch any of that last night? Oh, man. My head is going to explode. Oxygen? O2, anybody? Uh, Good afternoon. It is uh, 1211. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air as he has done mercifully for uh, 29 weeks. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Facebook and Twitter, you'll find the commentaries there. You can also send us a note via the website, uh, scottthompson at 900chml.com. Uh, I don't know if you watched the debate last night. I did because it's my job. And, um, and you know, my daughter was upstairs. I could hear the laughing. She thought it looked like um, two granddads fighting over a dinner table, holiday dinner table. She seriously thought it was hilarious, which, you know, when you see a 17, 18-year-old laughing at it, you pretty much know, uh, well, we all, we all know what direction that went in. Uh, I'm not sure there's a lot of Americans very happy of uh, what they saw last night. Anyway, uh, I think uh, Jake Tapper from CNN uh, summed it up beautifully describing the debate when he said this. That was a hot mess inside a dumpster fire inside a train wreck. That was the worst debate I have ever seen. In fact, it wasn't even a debate. It was a disgrace. Uh, You know, it kind (laughs) of... I think we should do a movie trailer on this, you know. Dueling granddads, two podiums, 90 minutes, no audience, no bathroom break. Clip. I paid $38 million one year. I paid $27 million Show us your tax returns. I went. uh, You'll see it as soon as it's finished. You'll see it. Two oldsters who don't get along. Thank God there was no sharp objects in the room. Clip. None of that is true. Oh, it's really? Totally he didn't give it no, Mr. President. I'm willing to do anything. I want to see well, peace. Then do it, sir. Say I, it. Do it. Family screaming, kids crying. The only thing that was missing uh, was the kitchen table and turkey parts flying all over the place. Clip. Vote and let your senators know how you strongly you feel. Court? Let Vote now. Are you pack the Make court? sure you, in fact, let people know you're a senator. I'm not going to answer the question. Why because, would you answer that because question? Because the you question is, the question Supreme is, Court the question left. Will you Who shut up, man? Listen. And it all ends with a nice little plate of sandwiches with a crust cut off. Dueling granddads coming to an octagon near you. You don't want to miss it. Man. Uh, unbelievable, to say the least. 
Uh, our Washington correspondent with Global News, Reggie Giacchini, had this to say about the whole fiasco. Donald Trump walked into this debate with a uh, plan to uh, get under the skin of uh, Joe Biden. And what he did was, uh, was, was destroy the debate by uh, not being able to simply stay quiet for just a couple of minutes. It is putting Republicans in a really hard place this morning because they can't say that Donald Trump did a good job, but they also can't publicly criticize the president's performance because they understand that that could come back to, to bite them. This, this, was, uh, this was not a good debate. All right, Reggie Giacchini, Global News, Washington correspondent. Uh, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, uh, public relations consultant and guru, Alyssa PR. She's with us now. Alyssa, how are you this fine day? Well, after taking a jar of Tums after that debate, uh, oh, I'm just doing fine. I mean, you know, honestly, you played the clip that I wanted to actually quote, which is, you know, very apt by Jake Tapper. I mean, he basically... I think what most people were thinking, except for the Proud Boys, of course, the uh, white supremacist group, but it was maybe the most uh, upsetting, anxiety-ridden, uh, horrific, uh, you know, 90 minutes of American politics that I have ever witnessed in my lifetime. That being said, it's not like we didn't know it was coming. Um, uh, well, just a second. You know what? Let me jump in here because we kind of had an inkling of the way of his combative style. We saw it all the way through with the Hillary Clinton debates. But this was next level, Scott. This You are right. Level. Yeah. This was I mean, the only thing he didn't do was pound his fist and stamp his feet. This was next level bullying. It was childish. It was inaccurate. There were absolute lies and you know when even he said that the sheriff of portland or whatever it was supports me you know where there's been a lot of protest in me bringing in the national guard he actually tweeted that guy actually tweeted and said i have never said that i support uh donald trump and nor will i ever but you know i mean let's remember here who who was all this bluster for the bluster for was, was for his base and to fire up his base and when I was watching news clips prior to the debate in some of these uh, states that are, could be swing states, you know, they would speak to, you know, the Trump supporters and they would speak to the Biden supporters. And the Trump supporters, you know, he would, they would say, do you believe it when President Trump says this virus is from China? As sure as the day is sunny outside, that, tr- that virus is from China. So there are people. Well, wait a sec here, Alyssa. It is from what? China. Wait a sec. It is from China. What I mean, I I know uh, there's discrepancy well, over Trump, but but what he's saying is accurate. Now, is he inciting racism the way he's saying it? I would agree. But Just you know, he said Scott that 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 the virus was done was put here in America purposely. You know, I don't. He didn't say that last night. That. Yeah. No. No. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. But let's not argue where the origination of of how this all started in Wuhan and so on and so forth. But but again, yes, he does stretch the truth. But when he does say something right, we can't say it's wrong. Anyway, continue on. Oh well. <laughs> No, I, I just, you know, again, he, he pushes he pushes the, 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 the buttons on China because he knows that that's what, what will excite his base. But that doesn't, again, necessarily, like, again, the, the virus did originate in Wuhan, China. Um, is, there a, is there a winner here? Is there, I mean, many people can debate whether there is or there isn't. You know, I heard one uh, commentator who is a debate expert say that, you know, Trump got an F, but Biden only got a C. So was there a winner here? 
I think that if you looked at the way Biden comported himself over the 90 minutes of uh, incessant barrage of bullying, I would say that if you had to think of someone who could stand up to a world leader with decorum and at least attempt to be articulate in response, aside from the fact that he wasn't given much of a chance to create a response, I would say, who do I want to be commander in chief? Not the guy who flies off the handle, but the guy who actually stood and took it. No, you can you imagine like when we hear Scott about all these people that Trump fires in you know the in the White mm-hmm. House this is probably a very very accurate display of what happens to these staffers and what they have to endure day yeah. in and day out and, and, you know, you bring up a valid point about and, you know, it's easy to play Monday, uh, Monday afternoon or Monday morning quarterback and, and talk about Biden's performance. And he should have been more ready to take this in the sense that just like I kept thinking to myself, don't react, don't react, don't react. And then unfortunately, he took the bait. That being said, uh, I think the average person has absolutely no idea what it's like to stand beside someone who just comes at you with things that are so out of the blue that they just completely T-bone you. You just can't believe something that the person is actually saying those sorts of things. It's almost as if, you know, you're just dumbfounded by the whole thing. And that's clearly what Trump's uh, tactic was, was just to keep badgering uh, Biden on all of this. I think that we think, well, you know, did Biden take the bait? Does he have to take the bait? And then, you know, I think there comes to a point where, you know, say something. Just don't always take it. You need to stand up for yourself. So I think that that was a a no-win situation for him. And, you know, now hashtag, you know, just shut up, man, is actually trending. So I find that quite interesting. Uh, It's interesting that of all the things that were said, that that is a clip that's resonating. Why do you think that is? Because that's what everyone or a lot of people are thinking. Just shut up. You know, I was talking to my daughter about this this morning, and you know, I said, gee, you know, gee, they should have like, you know, uh, people were saying they should mute the microphone for the next debate if there indeed is another Biden-Trump debate. If indeed there is, and she asked, well, why didn't they just do it? I said, because you know what? There's a there's a set rules of engagement that happens yeah. before a debate that each side has to agree to, and uh, taking you know, shutting off the microphone in the middle of a debate just because one person is abusing it is not part of those rules. I think that that should definitely uh, be part of the next debate. But honestly, if I was in Biden's team, I'm thinking, you know what? We'll do our own thing. You can yell and stamp and scream to your own base. And those are the only people who are listening to you. I don't know why they would even give a, a another performance and do it all over again. So on that note, what is next and what would the rules be changed now? First of all, I think that, you know, everybody's slagging Chris Wallace. And I got to tell you, I don't think that he should be slagged. I think that he was, I think he did what he could in the face of what he was facing. So people are saying, you know, Wallace isn't being much of a moderator. You sit in that chair. Yeah, it would be tough. A show every day. So, you know, you sit in that chair. It's not as easy as it looks, people. And Chris Wallace has never, you know, given uh, President Trump a free ride. And he didn't give Biden a free ride either. You know, it was interesting, some of the the tactics that Biden was using, you know, when he just decided, and this is obviously practice, yeah, you can respond, but then turn to Americans, turn to the people you really want to talk to. And I thought actually that that was very effective. I think that where they are going to pick up voters, you know, those people who are undecided, is 
in the October 7th vice presidential debate, which I have to tell you, when is the last time you ever looked forward to a vice presidential debate in the U.S.? The answer Mm -hmm. to that would be, oh, never. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, there's a lot of tweets that are going around. One of them is, I have one up here, is I cannot, I simply cannot wait for Kamala Harris to drag Pence all the way to hell next week. So that's a quote. But, you know, maybe, maybe what really hangs in the balance here. Because we already know how Trump is going to react, but Mike Pence is not that guy. No. I don't think that Mike Pence ever sat on a debating team or has ever been really peppered with uh, questions or had a an extremely worthy and, some might say, ruthless opponent. And if you've yeah. ever seen Kamala Harris in her questioning mode, especially when she was questioning uh, Brett Kavanaugh during the hearing, yeah. Yeah. she is... Her blood runs cold. I mean, honestly, you're not going to get much past her. So, you know, this is a very, very important debate. Kamala Harris has to be able to straddle the line between tough and empathetic. And she can't seem overly tough because, you know, I think that a lot of voters in 2016 thought that Hillary was overly tough. And I also believe that more people disliked Hillary than they did Donald. And that's where the loss of that is. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that she lost to, and the Electoral College plays a lot into that. However, this upcoming debate is going to be very, very important. Uh, And again, not only for the reasons you have suggested, but thinking of the age of both of these candidates, they could both possibly be taking over if either one wins. And I think her performance even more critical as people are thinking, well, if he can't make it, she can take over. Well, you know, there was a slip of the tongue, apparently, I think a week or two ago when she called it the uh, Harris administration. And that may well be. And I I personally don't have a problem with that. But, um, you know, she does have to be careful. But I think that if you're looking for somebody to ably steer or re-steer the course of the U.S., because the past four years have made it, you know, when you talk about from superpower to absolutely losing their their place uh, internationally and the respect of those outside of uh, his base, it's it's been like when you look at the world order right now and what's happening it's been a phenomenal drop and the fact that we are actually promoting white supremacy and that the this group called the proud boys which you know probably goes in there to these demonstrations and and wreaks havoc has already put out a logo that says what is it uh stand up and stand by yeah he basically yeah. said that and you know, uh, we, we we talk about things like the holocaust and we say never again well i hate to tell you folks this is again. This is again. You know, it's funny like that you should make that comparison because my mother, who was a child during World War II and spent her childhood running from her house to bomb shelters, said we all stood by and watched him march across Europe, and that's who this man reminds her of. Uh, that's an 86-year-old woman saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter the political stripe, uh, uh, how is America feeling today? I think people are shaking their heads. I think that when you when they switched right over to the uh, announcers, I was watching NBC, and then I started going across the channel, the you know, channel surfing a bit. But people were dumbfounded. Savannah Guthrie, Lester, you know, they were all dumbfounded as to what they were watching. Andrea Mitchell, who's been a longtime political reporter, she says, "Listen, I've been in this game since 1976." 
And I have never seen anything like this. Not a chance. Nothing even comes close. So here is somebody who's got the gravitas and who has the history of covering presidents and politicians and, you know, political discourse for more than 30 years. And yet even she who is, you know, she's pretty hard to shake, I would say, Andrea Mitchell, she was dumbfounded. And all across the dial, all those stations that, you know, Trump puts under the category of fake news, anybody doesn't like what he has to say, fake news. Um, you know, they were, they all felt the same, such as, which all supports that, uh, opening, um, clip that you played by, uh, Jake Tapper. So uh, what about the world stage? What about America's image on the world stage? Cause you know, this stuff's going around, uh, the world today. Uh, America great again. But there are people who think that, and then I think that it's the, you know, and I, th- and I wonder about people who really support Trump because, you know, I think that at its very, very baseline, anybody who supports white supremacy, I, I, I think that just negates everything. I don't think that you can apologize for that and say, oh, but his policy here and his policy there. To me, yeah. I, I don't get it. That, that to me is baseline. You can't support uh, a dictator. That, yeah, I agree. You know, that's all that that comes down to. But there are people who do support him and that they think that they can see past that and they look at it as bluster. So I think that we have to recognize that. And I think that for Canadians, they go, oh, thank goodness I live in Canada and not in the States. Well, you know what? I mean, it's been shown throughout history that we are about often eight years behind in sort of catching up to where, and as well, if, if, to where we could be. And if the world is watching what, what America and what Trump is up to, how long before the rest of us are all taking a page out of the playbook? Come on. Well, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So, and, and that's the problem that we have to quite honestly worry about because it does provide fuel to the fire, even with these, you know, subgroups who don't have a lot of traction now. But what it does is that it gives them permission to pop out from the underground and say what they've always thought they could say, but hasn't not necessarily been yeah. accepted. So now that you've been given sort of a bit of daylight, such as the Proud Boys, yeah. well, then it's just, well, it's. It's game over. Like, let's go. We can just say what we want without repercussion. And the president of the United States supports that. So rules for a second debate. Should there be a fact checker? Should those mics there are be fact off? Checkers, but I it's mean, hard to do it all in real time. I mean, you know, Daniel Dale, who's been doing it for ages, yeah. um, you know, for uh, I believe he writes for the Globe and Mail. I hope I'm correct about that. He, uh, he, he fact checks, but I mean, even he needed time to, uh, you know, to. to so where does everything. this leave the second installment of this circus? Well, I think it leads to a number of things. I mean, right now, um, you know, Biden is on a whistle stop tour. Uh, President Trump is, you know, holding rallies where people can all sit cheek by jowl without masks because, of course, he doesn't think that the virus is, is going to do anything. I mean, I think that if, if one thing that I am, um, a little bit upset about is that Chris Wallace moved off the virus a little bit too quickly. You cannot um, negate the fact that there are 200,000 plus people, U.S. Uh, citizens, that have died from the virus. It was always like, okay, oh well, you know, let's talk about the environment or whatever. I don't know. I think that I think that you really have to come up with fewer topics and really unpack them. I think that there has to be, in this case, with uh, these two candidates, I think that. When one is speaking, the microphone is turned off. 
and then the other is speaking, yeah. his microphone is turned off. Uh, I think that that's absolutely critical. I don't know even know if Trump would even participate in a, in a in a debate like that. It's going to be fascinating to hear what both of them have to say today about all of this, and 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 especially uh, the the moderator. It's going to be interesting to see how you know how shell shocked they are today. Well, I, I agree. I agree with that. Um, I also think that maybe. I mean, you know, you look at the. Um, you know, you look at some of the headlines here, and uh, the New York Times says Chris Wallace struggled to rein in an unruly Trump at first debate. And then you look at The Guardian, which is out of the UK. Moderator Chris Wallace criticizes Biden drowned out by Trump in the debate. Well, you know, I think that what we saw by that is nobody's going to tell Donald Trump what to do and nobody's going to control him. And I think that you really have to think carefully about, you know, who the, uh, the next moderators are. And I, I think that sometimes we go with, you know, the expected, but maybe we have to go with the with the unexpected. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant, Alyssa PR. Alyssa, as always, thank you so much for the time. I'm not sure how much weirder it can get, but when it does, we will chat again. Thank you so much. Well, I'm going to do some breathing exercises to calm me down after this one. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> go do some yoga. Something, a little will. meditation might help. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Also, you know, what about politics in Canada? What, what about what is happening here? And the federal liberals have survived their first confidence vote since the House of Commons returned from a controversial, a controversial prorogation requested by the government amid the We Charity scandal. And uh, obviously the NDP teaming up with the liberals to get this through. Here's what Mercedes Stevenson from uh, Global News had to say with Bill Kelly this morning on what all went down last night around 3 a.m. that they just wrapped up. Uh, an unexpected confidence vote for the government. The government called that a uh, bit of a dare to the opposition to try to bring them down over COVID-19 benefits. The opposition was not happy about the way the government handled this. That's why the vote was in the middle of the night, because they were using procedural tactics to demonstrate uh, their unhappiness. And that's because this is about $34 billion in new spending, and the government short-circuited debate on it. They shut down debate, uh, which meant that the bill went through very very quickly arguing that that was important because people are about to lose their benefits. The opposition pointing out, well, the Liberals were the ones who prorogued Parliament, which is why they weren't able to look at legislation for a month. So at the end of the day, the opposition all voted in favor of this, but they were not happy about the level of scrutiny the bill and the spending in there got. Yeah. Uh, let's bring in Tuff Conacher, uh, uh, co-founder of Democracy Watch, adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. He is with us now. Duff, thanks for taking the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. So uh, how do you describe to Canadians what happened last night at 3 a.m.? Uh, more abusive process by the Trudeau Liberals, adding to the prorogation and uh, the shutting down of Parliament, which was done with the NDP, essentially shutting down Parliament in April. Uh, the NDP forgetting the D in their name, that uh, there was no reason why Parliament should have been shut down then, uh, essentially, and uh, could have operated as it is now operating again now, uh, almost fully, which is great. But um, yeah, just more abusive process from the Trudeau Liberals. So uh, obviously we knew uh, all of the, the hoopla leading up to the, the throne speech on September 23rd and the six weeks of prorogation and, and the elimination of the WE uh, charity scandal uh, committees and such. 
and, and then, of course, uh, the throne throne speech was put forth. Uh, certainly not what everybody was expecting, and and certainly not what we had hoped for, or some had hoped for. I guess you, you know by doing this in the middle of a pandemic and such. And then, obviously, we we understood that after this was presented, the NDP would accept this. So why did they end up in in the House at 3 o'clock in the morning w- with a confidence vote? We knew the NDP was going to support them anyway. Well, first of all, the, the Liberals invoked closure on the debate of the bill. So that was an abusive process, which they... They promised to stop doing those kinds of things back in 2015, and they haven't stopped them. Uh, they've done them uh, just as much as the Harper Conservatives did. And uh, then they declared it a confidence vote, which is also an abusive process. Uh, we should have the same system as the British Parliament has, which is that uh, they have a very clear definition of what a vote of non-confidence is. And there's only one thing in the British Parliament, which is a vote of non-confidence, and that is a resolution proposed by an MP. Could be an opposition MP, could also be a a government MP, that states the legislature does not have confidence in the government. And there's nothing else in the British uh, parliamentary system that is considered to be a confidence vote. And that makes it very clear and doesn't allow the government to just say, oh, this is a confidence vote or that's a confidence vote and we dare you to vote against us, which is what Harper did during the minority government years from 2006 to 2011, did it repeatedly and uh, essentially redefined what a confidence vote is in our system. And he did it uh, as the liberals were changing leaders and the opposition parties were weak to essentially govern like he had a majority. Uh, because the opposition parties didn't want an election during that time period. And we should switch to the British system. It's much more fair and democratic for everyone, and it stops these kind of abuses of process by the Prime Minister. What does this mean for Canadians? Well, unfortunately, it means that uh, this minority government is operating like minority governments have in the past in Canada, which is uh, very bad system that allows the Prime Minister to have uh, excessive power that the Prime Minister can abuse. And, you know, essentially, uh, as the former Globe and Mail columnist Jeffrey Simpson termed it years ago, we essentially uh, have, in a way, you could say, a friendly dictatorship with the Prime Minister's kind of power to drive things in this, this direction. Prime Minister is only one member of Parliament. And uh, as one member of parliament should not have this excessive power to abuse the uh, rights and uh, the power of parliamentarians overall, all 338 of them. And uh, analysts have uh, done studies worldwide and found that our prime minister and our premiers at the provincial level are the most powerful uh, elected rulers of uh, any democracy in the world. And we need more checks and balances to stop this kind of abuse of power. Uh, as long as Justin Trudeau has this, uh, the support of Jagmeet Singh and the NDP, this will happen, correct? Uh, it will. But uh, the NDP is 
flexing its own muscles in that it is saying this we're not going to give you our support for nothing and that's why this bill was amended uh so in that way the minority government worked but the prime minister shouldn't be able to invoke closure on debate and deem something a confidence vote just because the prime minister wants to uh, there should be checks and balances. And again, we should switch to the British system where there is only one thing that is a vote of confidence, and it's very clear to everybody what it is. And it's not in the Prime Minister's hands to determine it. It's set out in law. And that has stopped a lot of abuse in in uh, the British system. And uh, they've also fixed election dates, which is tied into that same bill. They have fixed election dates in Britain by law. And the only way that a election can happen other than on the fixed election date mm. is if there is this resolution passed saying that the legislature does not have confidence in the government when you're in a minority government situation. Does this sort does this sort of thing, Duff, resonate with Canadians? Uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, poll numbers still strong after his September 23rd uh, throne speech. D- is this too inside politics for the average person? Uh, this part of invoking closure and deeming something a confidence vote uh, is a bit obscure, but it's all tied into the ability to call a snap election. And, for example, that's been done in B.C., and 60% of people are against it in, in B.C. They think it's just a self-interested move by Premier Horgan. Uh, I would call it a, the move of an old dictator, not the move of a new Democrat. And uh, he's called this election in the middle of COVID when voting is very difficult in person and unsafe. Uh, and... Uh, all self-interested because he's riding high in the polls like the federal liberals. And democracy watch is currently seeking a lawyer to challenge that as a violation of the constitutional convention established by the fixed election date law in BC. Uh, But um, it's the same at the federal level. uh, This idea of saying this is a vote of confidence. Well, if, if the majority of MPs, with the opposition holding the majority of seats in this minority government situation, the majority of them had voted against this, then then Prime Minister Trudeau could could say, oh, well, I, I said it was a vote of confidence. So now I'm going to go and call a snap election, even though we have a fixed election date law, and even though it was an abuse of power to deem it with a vote of confidence. So um, that's the kind of abuses that need to be stopped, and they're tied into this power to call snap elections when it benefits the ruling party. And a majority of Canadians in past polls have said they're against that. They want rules that are enforceable. They want them written down and clear to stop these abuses of power by prime ministers and premiers. So there is concern out there. The polls that have been done have shown that 80% plus want clear written rules to stop these excessive and uh, abuses of Mm. power by premiers and and prime ministers. We're certainly seeing uh, chatter of elections pop up uh, uh, all across the country. Uh, New Brunswick got one in, I'm saying, just under the wire in that little window before the second wave hit. And many were using that as an example. Well, we can go to the polls, no problem here. Even the prime minister said it's not a big issue. Uh, that being said, as you mentioned, the majority of, of Canadians do not want to to bother with an election uh, during the middle 
of a pandemic. We remember the liberals, David Peterson, calling an alert early election. It came back to bite him. What do you think is going to happen to those? And, and I'm not sure you can use New Brunswick as a good example anymore, because, again, that was before the second wave. But what do you think is going to happen to these that do call these snap elections during a pandemic? Well, B.C. will be a test case, and hopefully they'll face a political cost for this completely self-interested, undemocratic, unethical move that I think violates the Constitution. Uh, The Constitution Act of B.C. says that the election date is fixed. And under our parliamentary system, the only time that uh, you should then have an election in between the four-year fixed date period is when the legislature votes non-confidence in the government, which it didn't in B.C. And, uh, you know, it's not only just for the ruling party in their favor, it's also unfair to candidates, even volunteers. It's obviously unfair to the other parties because the B.C. NDP would have given an early alert to all its members to get nominated and get ready. We're going to go. So, you know, they would have at least probably a one week or two week head start from receiving that internal notice. So that's unfair to the opposition parties. But it's also unfair to anyone who might want to run. You know, when you have a fixed election date, it's much more fair to people who want to run for office because they can prepare and arrange their lives knowing this is when the election is happening. And so, you know, I need some free time during this period if I'm going to be a candidate that has a chance of success. And that means more people can run because people can rearrange their lives. For people to suddenly drop their hat and run at at a snap election call, it's really people who are wealthy and can afford to do it. And that means you end up with an unrepresentative legislature. So it's, it's, again, it's John Horgan's uh, snap election call was the move of an old dictator, not a new Democrat. Uh, obviously, an election federally avoided this time with a confidence vote uh, early this morning, late last night. Um, many are trying to predict when this will eventually fall. Do you see it lasting through the spring? Hopefully, the opposition parties will be smart and realize which they should have realized when the Harper Conservatives were in power and also passed minority governments. Uh, you know, when Paul Martin was in, had a minority government from 2004 to 2006. And the opposition parties control the legislature. They should pass a bill that changes the rules and checks the power of the prime minister to uh, deem things confident votes and, and to be able to go and call an election whenever they want. And, match the UK system. And then they would not be abused by these moves by the prime minister. And instead, what the opposition parties have done is said, oh, you're horrible for doing that. That's Hmm. what the liberals said to Harper through his uh, uh, seven years of minority government, or sorry, five years of minority government. Uh, Don't do this This as abuse of power. And now they're abusing their power. And the conservatives are saying you're horrible. Jeff, we've only got about 30 seconds left. Change the rules. Uh, we only got about 30 seconds left. What are your thoughts in regard to the We Scandal investigations? Will they continue now that this has passed? Where does that oh, leave yeah, all of that? Always, the committees always take a couple of weeks to get up and running again. There's right. often new members put on them. They have to elect a chair again and then decide on an agenda. But the opposition parties have made it very clear. They're going right back to the same agenda. And that's why it was such a big mistake for Trudeau to prorogue. It would have been better to have those hearings at the end of August when fewer people are paying attention. And now they'll be in the fall when lots of people are paying attention. So uh, they didn't really win anything with the prorogation, even though it was an abuse of power. 
Duff Conacher has been with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, adjunct professor, University of Ottawa. Duff, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Take care. Stay safe. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. If you are diagnosed with COVID-19, how do you handle the stigma that comes with it? My goodness. You know, we talk about this in mental health and all in other situations. But uh, if you do come down with this virus for some reason or some way, is there a stigma that comes associated with that? Do people want to be around you? Do people uh, want to be next to you? Or always asking you about how your health is, not for uh, your health and, and, and for your well-being, but so they don't get the uh, coronavirus. Uh, obviously, uh, as with lots of things, this, I guess, happens, and we're starting to see it with COVID-19. Let's bring in Steve Jordans, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, and with us now. Steve, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. I am. Thank you. So is there a stigma attached to getting COVID-19? I mean, my goodness, uh, we know very little about it. it. It spreads extremely quickly. One must think, my goodness, maybe you're just lucky if you don't get it. But what's the stigma that surrounds this? Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I bet there there is, having not been there myself yet, <laughs> um, you know, but for the grace of God, perhaps. Um, I haven't felt that myself, but certainly... You know, as we walk around, like I think of my wife and I walking our dog and, and we see people coming towards us uh, and we have this reaction that's akin to disgust of a sort. And in fact, we learn these reactions. These are very, very primitive reactions. We learn around um, when we're ex- experimenting with food, for example. Many of us have had the experience of eating something and then getting sick thereafter for any reason. Uh, maybe nothing to do with the food, but if we get sick right after eating something, we tend to avoid that food with only one trial. You know, it's very powerful, this sort of reaction we have to things that can make us sick or ill. Uh, and so, therefore, we are all kind of worried about that. And, yeah, if we know somebody has has had the virus, then that suggests to us maybe they still do, or maybe they got it because of behaviors they were participating in that led them to that situation. And so in either case, we are going to react to them with a little bit of trepidation, a little bit of caution, and they are very much likely to feel that. And if they feel that from many different directions, yeah, then we have a stigma going on. Is that any different than, say, the average person goes to the grocery store? We all know what that's like now. You walk down an aisle, it's like, whoop, there's someone there. You kind of do that wide sweep around. Is this the same similar thing? Well, I mean, I think to this person who, uh, what I imagine is that a number of people know that they've had COVID or or whatnot, we have this funny idea in in psychology that relates to this epidemic in a few different ways called the reflected self. And the idea there is we interact with other people, and as we interact, we get a sense from them what they think of us. Uh, So even in a normal kind of work setting that you might be in interacting with colleagues, um, you get a sense of, you know, do people think I'm, I'm clever? Do people think I'm... I'm creative in, in the things I do. Am I friendly? Am I aggressive? And so by their reactions, we get a sense of how they think of us. And that forms deeply how we think of ourselves. And so we kind of come to know ourselves through how we are reflected in others. And so for a person who is experiencing this and, and seeing sort of fear and disgust uh, as a reaction that others might have towards them, it, it could have a real impact on on them that would be 
you know, probably far more than, than those people we just steer clear of um, because we're all doing that with each other and there's no sort of judgment associated with that. So I think the stigma would rely on somebody kind of knowing and responding in a different way, you know, a more extreme way because of that right. knowledge. What about kids? Because we all know kids can be pretty hard on each other, uh, especially around things like this. Is, is there evidence of this where we're seeing, oh, you know, juniors got COVID-19 or had it, so stay away from them? Yeah, I, I mean, as, as you say, you know, kids can be can be tough and, and parents can be tough when it comes to the health of, of their children. So I think that latter thing you just suggested of, you know, knowing that there was uh, a kid or even a family, like like imagine you were a brother or sister of, of some other kid who uh, is known to have, have COVID or somebody in the family does, you know, that could very well be enough for parents to say, don't don't play with that person. And, and the implication is, you know, this would probably never be said out loud. But in the minds we hear that person is dirty somehow, you know, they, yeah. they could be carrying the germ or be connected to that germ. And it's that dirty and it's that disgust again kind of connection that really would, you know, can make it a, a horrible thing to the extent that it happens. And, and certainly a very horrible thing to experience to have everybody suddenly feel that you are disgusting, uh, for lack of a better term, that hits deep. Typical of pandemics, other situations like this? I mean, we don't seem to react this way with people who have a disease like a cancer or such. Well, but I, I would imagine, you know, that there's this link towards the behaviors that might have led you to, to get it, like had you been more careful. So if we imagine right. a disease like HIV AIDS, especially in the early um, stages or the early, you know, when it just started coming out, I think there, there certainly was stigma around that uh, and, and this concept that, you know, people don't just randomly get it. Um, you get it because you weren't engaging in proper practices in some way, shape, or form. So I think that's where the sort of judgmental uh, aspect comes from. Certainly with cancer, we tend to feel sympathy. We also don't worry that we're going to catch the cancer from somebody. So that contagion right. factor isn't there. But I think if the contagion factor is there and and if there's a sense of um, yeah, this person may have been a, a, a played a role in, in actually getting that, then those are people we would rather avoid. Uh, and so those would be the situations where we would see that come up. It's interesting you brought up AIDS because when you were speaking earlier, that's exactly what I was thinking of. So do people think that uh, this is a choice, that you know, uh, it happened to them because of bad behavior or a, a behavior another person doesn't approve of in some way, uh, as opposed to, oh, you know, this poor person got sick? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there is that element. I, I, of course, we also, you know, we are empathetic creatures, and so most of us would, would feel some sympathy as well. The thing is that that disgust and that self-protection uh, reaction is so primitive. It's, it's just part of what we call our limbic system, which is the oldest part of our brain. Um, and that will override uh, a lot of the more, you know, conscious, rational things where, where we might say, oh, I'm sure they didn't do that or, or whatnot. Uh, or, you know, we're, we're sure they didn't go out to contract the disease. And, and maybe they were actually being pretty careful. Um, but but I think, you know, that's our worry is is that it was something about their behavior. Maybe they did deserve it. And that almost gives us a justification for being a little mm. bit more um, self-protective, which is which is really what it is, right? We, we often 
uh, a famous line from the band Rush. Uh, I won't get this right, um, but fear, ignorance, and prejudice go hand in hand, or, or, or something like that. The, the real core of prejudice is ignorance, um, a lack of knowledge, which leads to fear and self-protection. And so when people are acting in this way, it's fear that, that's kind of driving their response. And yeah, I think that notion that you may be engaged in something risky and therefore you got it. And therefore, I'm, it's not nasty of me to, to act fearful or even negative towards you. It, it almost provides us the justification for the prejudice that probably comes from a much lower level. So is this more about our own individual safety and survival rather than a prejudice? Well, I mean, that, that's what a lot of prejudices are, um, by, yeah. by the way. I mean, just to quickly talk about this, uh, quite often we have our most prejudicial reaction towards outgroups, so people that aren't like us in some way, that we don't know much about. And so it's that ignorance that makes them mysterious to us, that makes us feel like we don't know the right ways to behave around them. If we do something wrong, we might provoke um, a situation. And so it, it is this notion that, you know, if we're around people we know well, we feel very comfortable and very safe. And when we go beyond that, we start feeling a little fearful. Uh, and, and that reaction is, you know, basically a self-preservation reaction. It's often broken down, and we can come back to HIV AIDS here, you know, it's often broken down by education, where if somebody really understands the, the situation a lot better and has, has a better um, knowledge base around what's going on, they tend to be less fearful, uh, and and therefore they act less prejudicial. So, you know, in the early days of AIDS, you could probably have 200 people in a room and and tell them that one person there has AIDS and, and 199 of them or, or 200 would want to leave. Whereas now, you know, we wouldn't be fearful uh, in, in that way. We wouldn't react in, in such a negative way. And, and it's the knowledge and the understanding of the disease that's kind of gone us there. So what advice do you have for uh, Canadians who are obviously feeling anxious in regard to a second wave? How do you keep this in perspective? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'll just mention really quickly, at the beginning of all this in March, I created a free online course um, that that's, describes what that anxiety reaction is, how it comes about in our body, and gives some really clear tips and strategies about how to manage it. Because the problem is, you know, we are going to feel anxious as, as this time comes. It's, it's just the, the personal threat we feel, the fear of the unknown, the fact that we can't predict the future. All of these things make our brain uncomfortable and we'll kick in our fight or flee kind of system, which is that reaction to threat. Um, if it stays engaged too long, uh, it floods our body with cortisol. Cortisol impacts our immune system negatively, and we actually become more susceptible to things like the virus. So it is very important. I think this is a great time for people to, to learn this distinction between sort of um, uh, treatment for a mental disorder versus how how an understanding uh, and strategic approach to managing our mind. So I call that course mind control for that reason, that we can learn to kind of control our mind and anxiety reactions. And by doing that, we can give ourselves at least breaks every now and then. And just as one really quick example of, of one strategy or tip, we all have things uh, that we do that take our mind somewhere else. And it's all different for all people. For me, it's like going in the basement with my guitars and garage band and trying to write a song. When mm. I'm doing that, that's all that exists. Uh, and so that activity just takes COVID away. It takes all of this away for me. And I can go down for an hour or two and, and COVID doesn't exist. 
whatever those activities are for, for each of us, we should identify them. We should notice that, hey, this, this works for that. And we should start to see them as a potential thing we can use to manage our anxiety, that when we feel it really high, we can use these things to give ourselves uh, a break. So I think this is a time for people to learn about that. Uh, my course is on something called Coursera.org. Um, so CourseRA.org, Mind Control. Uh, and, and that's you know a great time for us, I think, to all, we're, we're all feeling mentally unhealthy right now. It's no longer just a, a thing that some people experience. We all experience it. So why don't we learn about it? Why don't we learn how to keep ourselves mentally fit? Because we've got more challenges to come. Well said. Steve Jordans has been with us, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, talking about coping and the stigma around those that may have had and survived COVID-19. Steve, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.